0: Uh, We are continuing our series, Ephesians. Uh, We did the first three chapters, and last Sunday we took a little break with all the staff off at camp. Uh, I did a little online. Uh, I got a little bit of feedback, but if anybody else saw it and had any, I'd love to hear the feedback. I know it's not the same as being here. And I specifically said last week I did not want to do Ephesians 4 online when we weren't together because Ephesians 4 is kind of the chapter we've been building towards all series long every chapter is like this we're saying this in light of what is coming for Ephesians 4 and as I was preparing and getting ready I'm like man I could almost do two weeks of Ephesians 4 they have Paul packed a lot into this little chapter Um, so strap yourself in I'm going to say this right out of the gate if you don't have the app yet you really need to get it because I'm hoping that you're going to take lots of notes if you don't have the app. If you do have the app, I took all the notes for you. So, you know, there's that. You get to just watch and learn and not have to worry about missing anything. So that's my little plug. If you don't have the app, you should really get it. But up until this point, Ephesians was cut, I said it early on, Ephesians is basically cut up into two sections. The first three chapters, Paul is laying out all the reasons we should be the most worshipful, most appreciative, most joyful people in the world because he lays out how good our God is and all the good things God has accomplished for us. And he is exhorting and encouraging the Ephesian church and encouraging us. So in light of all of these amazing things, In light of the fact that Jesus took two people that were opposed to each other and made them one. The fact that Jesus took people who were opposed to him and brought him into his family. In light of all of these good, rich things that God has accomplished in your life, we should not have any issues to find a reason to worship him and praise him above every other name that is on earth. And as we come into Ephesians 4 and we switch, now Paul puts on his teacher hat and he starts teaching about what does it mean to have this, as Ephesians 1 is going to say, to live a life worthy of the calling that God has placed on you. What does that mean? What is it going to look like? And he takes the next three chapters and he unpacks almost every area of life as a believer, as a follower and a disciple this is how your life should look based on the good, amazing, and marvelous things God has done for you. So without any further ado, <coughs> Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God, There's that verse. This is the one that we've been referring to. This is the one we've been building towards. I beg you, lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves unified in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. So Paul jumps right out of the gate. Anytime, here, little Bible school study lesson for you. When you're going through the Bible and you see the word, therefore, every time you see that word, therefore, you need to take note of everything that was said before the therefore. What Paul is saying is based on everything, and he means everything that he has said in Ephesians thus far. Therefore, in light of all of this, this is how we're to act. This is how we're to live. This is what it means to live a life worthy of the calling. And so, what does a life worthy of the calling look like? Well, he lays it out like this. He says, first, it's humble. Second is gentle. Third is patient. And patient for what? Patient for each other's faults. Ooh. It's one thing to be patient when you're waiting for your spouse to get ready and you're late. But patient when everyone's for their faults. patient for the way that that person's personality and behavior rubs you the wrong way. Being patient for Ooh. Be patient. Be loving. Ooh, to be united. Now, I don't know if you're picking us up on this. All these things have a key element required. It's hard to be gentle, patient, loving, and united without anybody around. And this is something that we often miss when it comes to the idea of God having a calling in your life. Your calling is too big for you to accomplish on your own. Your calling not only requires God to be your source, to be your strength, to be your wisdom, to be your source, to accomplish all that God has called you to be, but your calling also includes everyone around you. Because every person in your life has been strategically placed there for some reason. Some of them are to test you. Don't point fingers, okay? Some of them... Are simply there to test you because James says that it is through the testing and persecution that our character and our faith is built up God places people in our life to test us to refine us God places people in our life to assist us in accomplishing the things that God has called us to do and this is the beauty of the church because God has called you not only to do something ministry-wise, but God has called you to be a good spouse. So guess what? There's a bunch of married people in the church. You have a whole resource that you can lean on, talk to, be open and honest with to help you be the best spouse you can be. God has put you in a church full of people who are parents so that when you make mistakes as a parent, and we all do, If anyone's never made a mistake as a parent, you're lying. So when you make that mistake, you can either lash out and be angry and beat yourself up, or you can go find parents that are in the church that are smarter than you and say, I did this. And they're going to come alongside you, and they're going to say what? I did it too. This is how I handled it. This is how I overcame it. Oh, that's better than what I did. God has placed you in a church ladies full of other ladies so that you can discover what it means to be a woman after God's own heart. Men, <coughs> you have been placed in a church full of people, full of other men who are at different stages of their faith walk so that we can discover what it means to truly be a man of God. And not the world's version. And if, the wor- if our version of manlyhood and womanhood and parenting and marriage looks oddly like that of culture and society, then we've missed what the Bible is teaching us about those things because the two should not ever be too closely aligned. Jesus calls us to be countercultural. Jesus calls us to go against the stream. We should stand out in a crowd. There should not be, and we need the group of people around us to help us understand what that means. So a life worthy of your calling is humble, gentle, patient, loving, united. Because even though we're all good church people, it doesn't mean we all get it right all the time. And sometimes we're going to frustrate each other. Not you guys, of course, right? Because, you know, <laughs> everyone that comes to one church, we're just awesome all the time. what? and above all, bound by peace. Paul says that peace is something worth fighting for. Unity is something worth fighting for. Wait, what? you got to fight for peace? That seems, no, it's, it's not fighting against other people. You've got to be peaceful. No, it's fighting the urge within ourselves to break the peace, fighting the urge within ourselves to do something that's going to disrupt the peace that God so desperately desires for his people it's fighting the urge when they're fighting against friction and division and coming into maybe a dispute and saying, hey guys, let's find some common ground and let's stop fighting. Because all throughout scripture, God calls us to be unified, to be one in spirit, to be one in heart, to be one in purpose, to be one in mind, to be one. Paul says it's so important, it's actually worth Fighting for. Continue on. Ephesians 4, starting verse 7. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives, and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it said he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all of the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now, this whole idea of dissension and blah, 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 blah there is a whole realm of theology asking the question, what happened to Jesus after he died on the cross? And some of you may have heard some of these theories. and Some of them are way off base. I'm just going to put it out there. But I don't have time to go over all of that. So here's my little plug. If you want to know or have an open discussion about this time of what happened for those three days after Jesus died on the cross, if you want to have some informed discussion about it, then I'm going to encourage you come the fall to keep your Wednesday nights open. That's all I'm going to say. I want to keep Wednesday open. Because there may be some discussion and Bible study and ask the pastor. and There, there might be. I, I can neither confirm nor deny We know what's going to happen. But Wednesday night, it's probably going to happen that night. Some giggling going on in the back. And it's not just going to happen in one location. We're going to do it in all of our locations. So that everyone can join in. Because I don't want space and location to limit us. But What we're going to talk about here is we're not going to talk about what happened when Jesus died. What Paul is simply saying is that Jesus left the heavenly places. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian church, affirming the fact that Jesus is 100% God. He's not just a man who was smarter than everybody else, just had something else figured out that nobody else did. But Jesus, 100% God, came down, became 100% man. He descended not only to the earth, but he descended to the darkest places of our earth. And he went and he found the people that nobody else was talking to. He found those who were wrapped up, caught up in a life that was contrary to God's. And he extended his love. He extended his grace. And he extended his truth. Jesus said we're supposed to be grace and truth hand in hand, both equally, not one over the other, and he stepped into these dark places. He descended to the lowest part. Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. Jesus, three days after he died, rose again, was seen by over 500 people, and ascended into heaven, and Jesus told his disciples, the reason I have to ascend, the reason I have to leave you, is because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you and give you gifts and abilities that you do not have on your own so that you can do what only you can <clears throat> you can do what only God has enabled you to do. Jesus ascended, he took the captives, which is all part of that, anyways, not talking about that. So that he could send the Holy Spirit and he could be. Because if Jesus stayed, he could only be in one location at one time. He'd be very limited. But because of his ascension, he sent his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be everywhere all at once, empowering everybody all at once, filling us all at once, giving us the gifts to do what God has called us to do all at once. We don't have to take turns. So he ascended, he sent the gifts, and what are those gifts? Verse 11, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. I want you to store that statement in your mind. We will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full, complete standard of Christ. Hold on to that one. We're going to come back to it. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. Growing in every way, more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Growing in every way, more and more like Christ. Put that one beside the Christ standard statement. Keep that one. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. <coughs> so Paul says. Here are some of the gifts. Now if you've ever read through the Bible. <laughs> Paul loves his lists. And he's got a bunch of them. Throughout all of his writings. And this is just one of many. Lists of the gifts. That the that the spirit gives us. But he gives us this list. The apostles. The prophets. The evangelists. The teachers and pastors. And they're. The reality is, is that we do not just have one of those things operating in the church. If Paul sent those gifts to the church to help us become mature and unified and to equip in all the fullness of everything he just laid out, that means that all five of those gifts are at one church and every single church that is out there right now. And for everyone who's like, yeah, we have the pastor's thing covered. We got three of them in our church. No, that's not what Paul is saying you have to remember when Paul is writing this, he's writing to a group of people who didn't have paid staff. Their church didn't have pastors. it didn't have the the quote-unquote professional Christians. He's writing to a group of people where there were leaders and there were those that were being coordinated. Everyone had a role. Everyone did their job. So there was no quote-unquote pastor. And what has happened in the last little while is we've reduced pastor to being the guy who gets paid to do ministry. We we have the pastor, and that's all we need. These other guys, these other gifts, these other, no, 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 no. That's not how it works, actually. See, I might be the pastor, quote, unquote, of this church, but my role in the church may not actually be the role of the pastor. My role might be the role of the apostle, As the one who oversees and encourages and teaches and informs and builds up the leaders who builds up the evangelist somebody here might be the evangelist who goes out and they share the love of God and share the truth and share Jesus with the world and the one that is inviting people in there's an evangelist somewhere in one church. There's a prophet somewhere in one church, the person who speaks the very word of God, who has this very close-knit relationship and knows God's voice and knows God's leading and guiding. And he is, they are, not he, could be she, they are God's spokesman for the church. I might have the job pastor, but someone in one church might actually be the one who carries the role of pastor, the shepherd, the one who comes alongside and cares and loves and tends to those who are in need just because I have the quote-unquote role, and I'm not changing my title, I'm not going by Apostle Matt anytime soon because that's just weird or prophet or any of the other things that they said on there. There's guys that do that. And I'm like, ugh. Give me, kiss me, ugh. Anyways. The point is, is that all five of those need to be functioning. And it's not just that there's one. There's a whole bunch of evangelists in here. There's a whole bunch of people in our church right now that have the giftings and the talent and the personality to just go out and reach people for Jesus. That is their gifting, that is their passion, that is their calling as I'm saying it. You're like, it's me, but I don't want to admit it. I get it. Each and every one of us fits into one of those categories. And our role is to figure out where we fit so that we can help the church become all that it is meant to be because what are the gifts meant to do? They are meant to equip the church to do the ministry. Not pay the pastor to do the ministry, equip the church. Woo-hoo. All of you, all of you online and all of you in Redverse. The job is not to do the ministry, it's to equip you, you to do the ministry. Equip you to do whatever it is that God has called you to do. Give you the gifts and the talents and the knowledge and the resources and whatever else you need to fulfill your calling to equip the church, to build up, to encourage, to increase your confidence, to be your biggest cheerleaders. woo You got this, and you do. You really do got this. You really can be all that God has called you to be. I fully believe it. The problem is, do you believe it? Do you believe that you can wear the hat that God has placed on you to do your part in fulfilling the mission that God has placed on our church? Do you believe it? Because once you get the idea that, yeah, I think I can do this, and you're willing to take that step, then God can come alongside, give you all the power, show those of us in Leadership to come alongside you to cheer you on to help you in any way that we can But you got to be willing to take that first step You got to be willing to say yeah, I believe I can do this with God's help And watch as God brings people around you to do what God has called you to do And the amazing thing is that once one person takes a step, it's amazing how many more people take follow All it takes is one and bring in the unity, faith, and knowledge, to grow in maturity, faith, and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So that when we we can be mature, and we will not be easily deceived by the lies and the stories of the world. Talk lots about how the church, recent trends, the church doesn't read the Bible anymore, and the church is so susceptible to being tricked out of their faith. The average person is three good questions away from abandoning their current worldview. Three, your worldview is your base understanding, your base beliefs that help you filter all that you are seeing, all that you're experiencing in the world. So your, what, your worldview should be a Christian worldview built on God's word. You filter everything through that. But we have gotten to such a spot, and it's mostly because of social media. I will point that finger. But it's because of a lot of other things. We're just not doing the work. We're not doing the studying. We're not doing what we need to be doing. The average person, three questions away from completely abandoning their faith. That's a scary spot. And it was just like that back then. And so Paul says one of the goals for the church is to become mature, to abandon childlike ways, to abandon childlike understanding, to become mature in our faith, become mature in our knowledge so that we don't be deceived. And not only will we not be deceived, we will see when others are being deceived and come alongside them and be like, yahoo, let's not go that way. And above all else, unified as one body, unified as one group in mind and purpose and in goals. Verse 17, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Wow. Wow. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live lustfully, live for lustful pleasure, and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't you. That isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes, put on your new nature, created to be what? Be like God, truly righteous and holy. Okay, I had this whole thing about the first part, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip it. Um, this is the third time Paul has made the is really high standard crazy statement. What were the three what were the three things these statements that Paul made about your life? A Christ is the standard for your life. The standard. This is where you, this it's not let's be better than Matt. It's not let's be better than my parents. It's not let's be better than somebody. Here's the standard. To be like Christ. To become more and more like Christ every day. And you were created to be like God, holy and righteous. Wow, Paul. Way to keep the bar low. But these aren't statements of this is, he just says, this is true about you. Not that you can be like God, not that you should strive to be. You were created. There is something in you, something in your being, in your person that God has placed there himself so that you can be like God, holy and righteous. And is brought out, is magnified, and is strengthened by the Holy Spirit that comes to dwell in you, to strengthen you and empower you and encourage you and to speak truth and life and guidance in you because the Holy Spirit is your helper and you're a counselor. <coughs> but Paul drives the standard super high. Well, I can never be like Jesus. Well, that's why it takes your whole life to get there. It's not like a snap of the fingers and you're there. And I was thinking about this. I think one of the things that would help is we need to get back to this. We need to get back to asking ourselves, what would Jesus do? in everything, even when things are going our way, to just take that moment to just stop and ask ourselves that question, (laughs) what would Jesus do in this situation? And more importantly, in those tough tough situations where you want to rearrange somebody's face to just stop, say, "Mm." (sighs) what would Jesus do? Because if we're supposed to be more and more like Christ, if Christ is the standard, then it doesn't matter. It sh- we shouldn't be asking, what would so-and-so do? <laughs> what would Sidney Crosby do? No, we don't need to ask that question. What would the mayor do? <laughs> I was going to say, what would Trudeau do? No one's asking that question. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> the, all, any standard other than this one doesn't measure up. Because you have been called, you were created, and you are meant for so much more. So the question is, and the only question that ever mattered was, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this scenario? And the problem is, as I said earlier, one of the trends lately is that the church in North America is reading the Bible less and less. And one of the consequences of this is that I don't know if we know the answer anymore. Because if we don't read the Bible, we don't know the stories, and we don't know the teachings. We don't know who Jesus is anymore. We may know kind of the key ones that, you know, we know that Jesus turned water into wine, but the only reason I know that is because I like drinking, and I hate it when the church tells me I can't, so I just pull that one out, make them stop talking about it. I remember that Jesus flipped tables, and that's so I can be angry, because apparently Jesus had anger issues. That's not what that story is about. Oh, I remember that Jesus died on the cross because that was the only way that my sins could be forgiven and that, you know, I could be made new and I can live guilt-free and continue to do everything. Actually, that's not what that's about either. Oh, and I know that Jesus came back from the dead. And that's why we have Easter, but I really don't understand the correlation of why that was important. We don't know our story. We don't know who Jesus is. And the result is, because we don't know the stories, and we don't know the teachings, and we don't know what is going on, we create this form of Jesus that, yeah, that sounds right. It sounds like something Jesus would say. That sounds like something Jesus would do. And all of a sudden, we've created a version of Jesus that looks oddly like us and not like the Jesus of the Bible and we've lowered the standard so much that it's like, I don't even really want to follow him anymore because he looks an awful lot like me. So one of the big things about what would Jesus do, we actually need to do some research and find out what would Jesus do. What did Jesus say about our enemies? What did Jesus say about the poor and the sick and the thirsty and those in prison? What did Jesus say about our finances? What did Jesus say about worry and anxiety? What did Jesus, well, that's Matt's job. No. No. If we're to achieve maturity as Paul is talking about, we need to get into the Word ourselves. We need to be getting in. We need to be digging in. We need to get into the meat of everything that is in there, getting it inside ourselves and allowing it to form us into the men and women that we've called to be. There's that we're calling again. What would Jesus do starts with actually knowing what Jesus would do. I love Paul because he he drops those three bombs. Here's the standard. It doesn't fit in the church, it's so high. Here's the standard, but he doesn't just leave it there, like, figure it out. Good luck. He actually says, here's the standard. And here's a few starting places. So this is how he closes the chapter. He says, here's, here's where we can kind of start wrestling. And here's a few spots to start with to kind of get us on our way. And then we kind of get an idea of where we're supposed to go. Verse 25. So stop telling lies. Which is a good start. So let us, let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we're all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you 're a thief, quit stealing. instead, you use your hands for good work, good hard work, and then give generously to others in need don 't use foul or abusive language let others let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them and do not bring sorrow to god 's holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved. On the day of redemption, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Now I'm going to redo that list, but I'm going to take out all the negatives. Because I remember reading an article a while ago that if you s- just say a whole bunch of no and don't and, you know, don't forget, what do you do? You forget. Don't do this. What are you going to do? You're going to do it. So we're going to take all the don'ts We're focus on the positives, focus on the, the height, the standard that Paul gives us. He says, look, here's, where here's the good starting point, okay? Start here. Tell the truth. What was the flip side? Stop telling lies. Stop telling all lies. White lies, you know, the innocent ones. Tell the truth. And stand on the truth. It comes back to the what I said earlier. Know the truth. Know the truth that God has defined for us. Know what is truth. Because you can't tell what you don't know. You can't teach what you don't know. Tell the truth. Know the truth. Start there. Resolve your anger before the end of the day. Let it go. Be happy when you go to bed. Why? Because if you let your anger fester, it becomes a foothold for the devil. I don't know about you, but I want to minimize devil footholds. Resolve your anger. Work it out. Don't go to bed angry. That was one of the marriage things that always comes up. Don't go to bed angry. Don't go to bed angry in your marriage. Don't go to bed angry with your siblings. Don't go to bed angry with your family. Don't go to bed angry, period. Resolve all your anger. Whew, that could be a that could that's gonna be a long day. I might not sleep for a while. Okay. <laughs> Work hard and give generously. Don't steal. Don't be lazy. Because that could be that that kind of encompasses a lot of things. Work hard and be generous with all that you have. Don't hoard it because you can't take it with you. Work hard. And give generously. Be generous with all that God, because ultimately it's not yours, it's God's anyways. And God calls us to give and to look after the poor and look after those that are not doing so well. So give and give. Give generously, give often, and work hard so you can do it. Be encouraging. What did Paul say? Put away your abusive talk. Put away your harsh joking. Put it all away and let everything that comes from your mouth be helpful. Be encouraging. I was going to tell a story, but I ran out of time. You're all lucky. Um, Be encouraging, because our words have the power of life and death. And our world needs more life being spoken into it. They need more helpful things coming out of people's mouths, not less. So be encouraging. And don't forget the Spirit. That guarantee that is in you that when redemption comes, when the day of the Lord arrives, you will be saved. The Spirit is in you, and the Spirit is your seal. That redemption will be a good experience, not a bad one for you. It comes down to this: be kind, be tender-hearted, and be forgiving. Don't be harsh. Don't be rude. Don't make fun of people at their expense. Be kind, be tender-hearted, and be forgiving. In all that you do, and ultimately in everything, ask, "What would, what would Jesus do?" Let's pray. Hey, We're streaming. Come on up. Paul, I, or Jesus, I thank you for all that Paul has crammed into this chapter. Jesus, I thank you that by your spirit and by your leading, you showed him. <laughs> you left him these words and that we can come back to it 2,000 years later and dive into it and be challenged by it and be encouraged through it. And God, I thank you for the reminder. We have so many truths flying at us. We have so many standards coming our way. There's so many expectations. And I thank you, God, for the reminder that there's only one expectation, there's only one standard that really matters. (coughs) And it's yours. And what do you ask of us? To be like you, Jesus. That every day we would slowly but surely be more and more like Christ. Be more like Christ in our actions. Be like Christ in our words. Be like Christ in our attitudes and our thinking. That by your spirit, our minds would be renewed. Because we want to live a life worthy of the calling you've placed on us. We all long to live a life that is fulfilling and joyful and peaceful and I love how you have taken these verses and just packed it all in and said, here, this, this is what you're looking for. This is what that life looks like. This is the expectation that comes with it. And thank you, Jesus, that you don't say it in a way that is condemning. You don't say it in a way that is knocking us down, making us feel bad. But admit you say it in a way that is encouraging that we can do it. We just need to try. Because your spirit rests in us and we have everything we need to accomplish it living in our hearts and our minds. So Jesus, help us to be more like you. Help us to be imitators of you in everything that we do. And in every situation, teach us to do exactly what you said to just (laughs) what I said. To stop, to take a breath, And ask that question. Jesus, what would you do in this situation? And help us to have the confidence and the obedience to act accordingly. And give us the knowledge to know what the answer is so we actually know what you would do. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a hunger for a relationship with you. Give us the hunger that we need to be all that you've called us to be. Pray this in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen.